Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Baggy Eyes Van Shank. And uh, here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Impending Baby Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Impending Baby Swingle? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, because we almost weren't able to record this podcast. I mean, we, we're here and we're good, but uh, just a couple weeks until our due date for our second child. So anytime, nice, man. Though, that's nice. pretty much all there is Congratulations. Yeah, man, I'm I'm so happy for you and your wife. Like, uh, guys, getting your second kid. The second kid is great. It's really sweet, and I'm I'm like so excited for you guys. I was so thrilled uh, to wake up this morning and and I realized that we were going to get to record this podcast about taxes instead of <laughs> you know finding out that that my baby was coming. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you got your priorities straight there, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely the most exciting moment of my day. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm glad we get to spend some time together and talk about yeah, the Bible a little too. bit. Uh, but it might be the the last time for a few weeks here. So, <laughs> right, yeah. So, so this means for our listening audience that likely this will be the last joint episode that we do for a little bit um, because probably the baby's going to come soon here, and then uh, you'll be on uh, paternity leave at least as far as uh, the John three fifteen podcast is concerned for a little while. Uh, and so who knows, maybe I'll throw out a few smaller solo episodes or something like that in the near future to keep the feed going. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we won't be able to finish our podcast series for a little bit here. But we do get to do one more episode before then. Um, oh, wait, no, sorry. I still have to explain why I'm Baggy Eyes Van Shank. I, oh, yeah. I totally forgot. It's because well, you already have a second baby, right? <laughs> if I could guess. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, that partly. And then uh, also our church is doing uh, like a, a prayer um a, a week of uh, like corporate prayer and so i've been like staying up too late doing prep for that and stuff so i, I just okay. it it's not so much the second baby per se but just bad sleep decisions <laughs> and then you started fretting about taxes because you had to talk about it with me right and then it's true the weight the of the world pressed on you and <laughs> yes taxes ta a theology of taxes is what's been keeping me awake but uh <laughs> Man, we're, I'm really making this episode sound lame, but I'm actually super pumped to talk about it because these are, these are some cool passages we got lined For sure. up. Well, yeah. Jeremy, what, what is this episode that we're doing today? We've uh, we've alluded, but what if uh, somebody's just popped into our episode for the first time? Hello, newcomer, by the way. Yeah, uh, so we're in the middle of our si series on politics and sort of dispelling a lot of rumors uh, concerning uh, various Bible passages and and how they interface with politics. And um, this is our fourth sort of topic to cover. Um, we started out with kind of like a general uh, discussion of power and submission and, uh, you know, the, the greatest among you is the one who serves, right? So the posture of someone who is a public servant. Um, and then we moved on from there to talk about the an eye for an eye. Uh, so capital punishment and, you know, just topics in that sphere of punishing people for crime, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last episode, we tackled Romans 13, uh, the famous submit to the governing authorities passage. Uh, and today we're actually going to kind of continue in Romans 13, but it's going to be later. We have a, a like a primary passage in Matthew to tackle today, but we are going to hit the rest of Romans 13 because it concerns taxation. Um and, uh, you know, we've sort of been coming at this from a very, like, liberty-minded uh, perspective. John and I are both pretty, like, anti-government in general, which has made it a convicting 
series for us because you've got these passages about submitting to the government and and all that. Um, but also mm-hmm. people in the church do misinterpret these passages to give extra like power and credence to the state that that it shouldn't have, right? And so I think we're we're trying to like walk that tightrope. And today might be the hardest one to walk the tightrope of because. Man, I I hate taxes. <laughs> I just hate taxes. <laughs> so uh, so we're gonna do our best. <laughs> yes. Well, that that's a that was a very nuanced way of putting it, Jeremy. Maybe for uh, people who like it slightly more spicy, we get to find out today. Is it true, as many libertarians say, that taxation is theft, or is taxation a moral obligation that we must do in every circumstance? <laughs> Sure. I'm th- and those are the only two options, right? It, it's true. There's no there's no gray area in between, no middle ground. <laughs> so so the verse we're going to look at is in Matthew, and it says um, there's all, two that two things that are certain in life: death and taxes. Right. Uh, straight out of the Bible, man. Straight out of the Bible, quoted by Jesus in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, <laughs> obviously, no. Um, <laughs> why don't you Why don't you take us into it, John? Uh, For get us sure. going so, here with the meat. Our uh, our uh, uh, our first verse that we're going to be kind of this is this is our center verse that we're going to be focusing on today, and this is from Matthew chapter twenty two, um, verse twenty one, the famous quotation of Jesus. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to start in uh, uh, part B of the verse here. He says, uh, "You know, Jesus answers them. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's." And so, you know, the, the verse here is basically, you know, Jesus is, is coming out and saying, you know, if we're, you know, uh, if you're asking about, you know, paying taxes to Caesar, then you should, you should render to Caesar. So give, give taxes to Caesar and, uh, you know, but, you know, and give, give to God the things that are God's. But I mean, the important part really in this verse clearly is, is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Yeah. Pay your taxes, you know, sub, you subject basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It's clearly what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, it kind of is, though. <laughs> I mean, yes, we're yeah, going yeah. to get into it. Um, man, there are so many cool things in this passage that get missed that that are, I just think, mind-blowing that have nothing to do with taxes. <laughs> so I'm excited to talk about it because it's not that people are so completely wrong about what this verse is saying, but there's just like a hundred things they're missing. <laughs> yes, right. And and that's the whole thing with the podcast is we want to dig into the context and see, well, what what is the passage actually saying kind of in its full, you know, fullest understanding. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so today, like uh, Jeremy alluded to, we're actually going to be doing kind of three passages, two from the book of Matthew and then one, the, the last section in Romans 13 that we skipped last week. Um, and so we're, we're probably just going to kind of chug through all the passages and do our, our usual thing of stepping through the verses and seeing what it has to say, do a little bit of, uh, as they say, exegesis, um, and then get to some applications near the end. So we should probably jump... clarify, John, that, that oh. it wasn't last week that we released the, the previous episode. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> it's been a while. You have your preaching mode on, right? <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. So it's just in my head of, well, that, that second baby life, right? You know, anything that happened in the past was last week. Uh, right. <laughs> just thought I would clarify. I'm not trying to roast you publicly No, no, it's anything, good. But... It's good. <laughs> yeah, heavens know you roast me enough on this podcast. <laughs> For sure. Well, Jeremy, how about you? Uh, you read us our first uh, selection here from the the book of Matthew. Yeah, let's get some more of that context here. Air dropping in to chapter twenty two, verse fifteen through twenty two, and uh, we're gonna see 
what this like broader discussion is that Jesus is having. So then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So that's our little section, our little uh, pericope, we might we might say, just to prove <laughs> that I, I got my money's worth at Bible college. That's <laughs> little pericope of Jesus and uh, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, um, and this coin, right? It's kind of the main characters here. <laughs> yes, yeah, totally. Well, and and so you 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 said we're going to airdrop into the middle of Matthew twenty-two. So now let's back up even a little bit more and think about well. So we just got this story of these, you know, people coming to Jesus and trying to trap him in his words. And then Jesus, you know, does some great rhetorical jujitsu and, you know, flips them on their back. Uh, you know, classic Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but, but there, it seems like there's a little bit of backstory that's sort of going on. And, you know, it says, then the Pharisees went. And so, you know, ostensibly there's something that's happened recently that's kind of instigating this particular event. And, you know, another one is, you know, maybe people don't just know off the top of their head you know, where broadly in the, you know, story of Jesus's life does Matthew 22 actually happen? So let's, let's just take a second and, and talk a little bit about the background context of, you know, where this verse actually, uh, where these verses actually show up. So this is, uh, Matthew 22 is getting near the end of Jesus's uh, ministry. So um, Jesus has actually just entered Jerusalem for the, the last time. That's the triumphal entry, you know, with the palm branches and everything like that. And he's also just recently cleansed the temple. So he's like driven everybody out of the temple. And immediately after that, in uh, Matthew's telling, there is kind of a series of conflicts and, and back and forth that Jesus has with the Pharisees um, uh, immediately after he cleanses the temple. And he tells these series of parables um, where he's, he's basically calling the Pharisees out and, you know, saying that they're hypocrites and they're terrible and, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're not going to inherit God's kingdom and, and, you know, telling all of these parables against the Pharisees. And it's that section of parables that's the instigation of the Pharisees then coming back. So it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted. The then in this case is, you know, after Jesus tells all this par all these parables against them. So Jesus has denounced and called out the Pharisees and now they're kind of trying to respond. That's a little bit of sort of where we're sitting with things. And that's a super important context. Like, that can't be just glossed over. Uh, the fact that they're trying to kill him by getting him to say something that will make the proper authorities angry at him is absolutely critical to understanding what's going on here. I mean, Jesus, again, like they, they say, they're flattering him. They say, you aren't swayed by appearances. You teach the way of God truthfully. It's true that Jesus isn't swayed by appearances, but he's also not trying to get people mad at him to kill him, right? Right, like, yes. <laughs> you know, so, so that context helps us understand why Jesus might give the answer he does. It's kind of a non-answer, although it's in many ways a much more brilliant answer than any of the ones they were expecting him to give, you know, but he kind of doesn't play their game. Yes. That's immediately what we need to figure out. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, as we and, airdrop and, into this. Like they're yes, they're yeah, playing yeah, totally. games with words. It's not like a congenial debate between someone who you know thinks that I don't know we should ban shoelaces and someone who thinks we shouldn't ban shoelaces or whatever it's yes. a political yes. topic right it's not a congenial debate among people who have an agreed upon set of rules and rhetoric it's like no they're trying to kill him <laughs> right yes and uh yeah yeah no, no, that's that that's really great to point out um w- one of the other things that i think is a little bit important for the context here um and that is uh maybe understanding more than just the elements of the story but also a little bit of what Matthew is actually trying to do in the way that he has set this story in Matthew 22. So um, this this first uh, like interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees is actually one of a series of four interactions that Jesus has with a number of groups of people. So he, he has this interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then in just a moment, the Sadducees are about to come and ask him about marriage, which is the famous, you know, you know, if somebody, you know, marries seven people, you know, and then in heaven, who is she going to be married to? Um, you know, that question. Then uh, immediately after that, the the lawyer, the Pharisee lawyer comes and asks Jesus, you know, what the greatest commandment is. Um, you know, another really famous story about Jesus, uh, 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 um, like answering questions. And then immediately after that, we get uh, the, uh, again, famous occurrence where Jesus challenges the Pharisees by asking them the question from Psalm uh, one ten one of uh, this is the you know the Lord says to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet and Jesus says you know well he sort of asks them this question of like well if uh, you know David called you know this this messianic figure Lord you know how can he be his son and and you know he sort of goes into this whole um, uh, thing there and the important thing about it being these series of four questions is it actually turns out that. During Passover week, which is, this is the, the time frame where Jesus is actually in Jerusalem, there is a, a Passover tradition in the Jewish community where uh, you, you kind of have this, this format where children are supposed to kind of have this question and answer period with their parents, uh, kind of like during Passover. And so the format is basically the children, um, not to get too deep into it, but basically the children are supposed to ask their parents three questions, which then the parent answers. And then the parent responds by asking the children a question, and then they're supposed to answer. And so it kind of has this, like, four-question format of kids ask three things, and then the parent asks one thing. And so it seems to be that, like, Matthew is is sort of doing a little bit of a, of a, of a um, thematic setting here, where basically, like, the, you know, all of the teachers, like the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the lawyers and, you know, all of the smart people are, you know in this context, like, made to be, like, children in God's household who are then, like, coming to God to ask him the three Passover questions. And then, you know, and then, uh, like, Jesus answers them. And then it turns around where then, you know, the father, you know, the the, the parent in the household, in this case, Jesus, then asks the, the, the children a question. And so it, I, I just want to point that out because it, it, I think it brings even more context to the passage where it's, the Pharisees are clearly trying to ask this like tricky, tricksy question of like catch you in your words, but Matthew is using it to like demonstrate, oh, like you guys are like kids, like <laughs> this is like the the catechism questions that you're supposed to be asking, and let let the parent just tell you how it is. <laughs> so it's like super brutal takedown, just with the way that the the you know the the story is actually set. Yeah, I find it interesting that Jesus kind of like Jesus is cautious about the ways in which he ticks off. <laughs> like the pharisees you know like he, yeah. he he's not afraid to do it 
<laughs> but uh but he doesn't do it haphazardly he got has these like clever ways of kind of like digging at their soul like things that you need a commentary or like a really deep reading to like pick up on these sorts of things you know yeah. so uh yeah it makes me think like what if i went to my pastor and started asking him all sorts of like really easy questions like you know is the holy spirit god or like you know basic like catechism questions and stuff yes and then he comes back at me with this like extremely deep thing about like the connection between circumcision and baptism and the old and the new covenants <laughs> and i'm like dude i don't yeah i don't have an answer for you there <laughs> yes so yes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so with that kind of context, maybe let's dig into let's let's kind of step through the passage and maybe make some observations before we get directly to the application of of sort of what this verse, what this chapter actually has to tell us about uh, taxation. So, um, you know, as, as I'm sort of like reading through the story, you know, we, we, we've sort of already talked about why the Pharisees are are upset with Jesus. And so, you know, it, it says here that they sent their disciples to him. And so so importantly, it's the the specific Pharisees that Jesus has upset earlier with his parables are not the people who are actually asking him this question. It's the disciples of those Pharisees who are asking Jesus this question. Um, and you know, probably what's going on here is the Pharisees, you know, it's the masters, you know, the, the higher ups of the Pharisees who are the ones who, you know, got denounced by the parables. And now they're like all sly, like telling, you know, their, uh, uh, you know, disciples or their trainees are sort of like the lower downs, maybe the lower profile Pharisees. Hey, you know, go, go ask this question to Jesus to try to trap him in his words. Um, and, and, and we actually even get this a little bit clearer in some of the parallel passages. So Luke, um, in chapter 20 actually has the same, uh, telling of this story as well. Um, and in there it's the disciples, you know, these disciples of the Pharisees are actually like explicitly called spies. And so the idea is that, you know, it's these people who, they're low profile, you might not necessarily know that they're associated with the Pharisees per se, or at least not the Pharisees who were, you know, just denounced earlier. And they're coming to try to, like, trap Jesus. Do you think that's why they flatter him? Because I don't remember any other passages where Jesus is, like, so explicitly flattered by someone who comes to ask him a question. I mean, there's people who like Jesus and say nice things about him, but that's not flattery, you know, um, whereas these people are are definitely laying it on thick. Like, what's your opinion, you know, you great teacher who teach the way of God truthfully and never say anything that isn't true, you know? And yes. Like, so maybe that's why. I, I never really, like, connected that it was their disciples of, of the Pharisees and not the Pharisees, the big, up, you know, big higher-ups themselves. Um but I don't know, maybe that's why there's this flattery. It's just a guess. Yes, no, I, I think I think you're exactly right. Like Jesus might not even know. I mean, he probably has <laughs> the intuition because he's the son of God, but but they probably didn't <laughs> right. come and identify themselves. Hey, we're the uh, disciples of the Pharisees, the guys who you really don't like, um, and we love you, right. and here's all these great <laughs> things. You know, it's like probably not going to be as effective if, if they announce themselves to be. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, so one of the other details that's really interesting here is uh, it says along with the Herodians. So it's the disciples of the Pharisees and then this other group called the Herodians. Now, what's uh, kind of interesting is the Herodians actually aren't mentioned in Mark's or Luke's telling of this guy. Well, actually, it, it, they're not in Luke's. I don't remember if they're in Mark or not. Um, but I don't importantly, think this passage is in Mark. Now sorry? That I, is this passage in Mark? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's in the, the three synoptics. Oh, um, okay. Didn't know uh, that. See? 
Yeah, yeah. Learn it's, new it, things every day. <laughs> yes, but but it's it's interesting because Marx is very very similar to Luke's and uh, is not. Uh, there's a few details that are are or there's slightly different nuances in Matthew that are not shared in Mark and in Luke. And one of them is particularly that we're told that there's this additional group of people, these Herodians, who come along with the Pharisees. Now, just kind of a little bit of background, the, the Herodians are a, a group of Jews who were politically supportive of Herod, who was the king of Israel uh, at this time. So, you know, basically, you know, historically in Israel, the... The Romans come and uh, uh, you know you know conquer or basically you know you know take over and annex Israel, and then they set up this puppet king uh, Herod, who uh, basically kind of rules on their behalf uh, in uh, Israel. And and there's sort of a connection with the um, uh, uh, sorry there's a there's a connection with the the Roman leadership that's there as well. But importantly, Herod is he's the Jew who is uh, uh, kind of like the civil authority in Israel at this time. And so the Herodians are the people who support Herod um, politically. Now, it, it it's actually kind of weird that Herodians are coming together with Pharisees to ask Jesus this question, because if you, the, the Pharisees are not really the biggest fans of Herod or the Romans, really. Um, and the Herodians, you know, if they're supporters of Herod, like Herod was kind of this wicked, not really devout guy. And so... It's a little strange that you'd have Herodians hanging out with these, like, you know, superstar religious people. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of the, the political agitators. And so it, it's sort of this strange kind of pairing of these two people together. And, and I think Matthew's kind of doing that pretty intentionally uh, to, to sort of highlight that there's sort of two different things that are going on here. You've got kind of this religious component to it and the civil component that's happening that are sort of coming together. So... I'm going to try to say this without making any sort of direct political connections to the modern day, but it's, are you saying Jesus is like the populist person that both sides of the establishment are coming together to, <laughs> to <laughs> destroy? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm honestly not, I don't, I don't like when I said it in my mind, I was like, that's, that's funny. I'm not trying to like <laughs> make any direct connections to yeah, any no, contemporary that, that... events, but it does. <laughs> It does evoke some some yes, contemporary well, feelings. <laughs> I, I mean, it, there there is something too. These are both establishment groups who staunchly disagree with one another, who are kind of coming together for the purpose of destroying someone with popular support. So there there maybe is a little bit of something going on there. Maybe but... a little bit of yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. These two people who are supposedly at war with each other are actually more on the same team than they appear to be. Than maybe they themselves even realize. They're willing to make these alliances with each other to destroy you know um this jesus right <laughs> yes yeah uh yeah yeah and so so the um so it's weird that these two groups are coming together um you know one of the other things is, is we already sort of talked about their flattery um you know that they're saying like all these things and uh uh you know it's likely to to sort of hide their intentions is kind of why they're they're doing this flattery of of trying to trap jesus in his words um, and in fact, actually, in some of the other gospel tellings, we get it even more explicitly that they're like the, the purpose of what they're doing is, you know, trying to trap him in his words so that they could hand him over to the authorities. Um, I think it's in uh, it's either Mark or Luke that has that uh, explicit detail. So they're like using this flattery to put him off guard for the specific intention of trying to hand him over to the Romans to be killed. Like that, like that is why they are asking this question. Yeah, like now that we've said you're a really good Jew and you teach the way of God correctly, maybe now you'll let your guard down a little bit and just 
rail on the Roman government and, you know, provide this extreme anarchist manifesto against the paying of taxes. And then, ha, we gotcha. You know? Yep. There it is. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. No, no. Um, and, and, but, but it, it, it is interesting. The, the question that they do ask him, uh, if I can sort of hit off that a little bit is they, they, they don't ask like, you know, is it, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or what do you think about taxes to paying, paying taxes to Caesar? They specifically ask him if it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, and for the Pharisees, this would be a very, very important question. So they're, they're actually making a, a, like a, they're, they're asking a question about how the, you know, law of Moses, you know, you know, God's law, what does it have to say about paying taxes to civil authorities? Um, you know, sort of their piece. And, um, and, and their question actually is a really good trap for, you know, someone who's not the son of God, uh, <laughs> because it's like, you know, how, how does Jesus come out against this? Like, um, ostensibly the Pharisees, you know, being these religious leaders who really, um, are, are pretty hardcore about the law and, um, really hate the Romans in all likelihood, the Pharisees would be pretty anti-tax, um, or anti-Roman tax specifically in this case. That they would probably have some notion of, you know, God is our king, God is our ruler, so paying taxes to this other, you know, civil authority who claims to be God is, you know, they, they would probably construct it as some kind of blasphemy. And so, in all likelihood, they would they would make some kind of lawful, like, law argument about how it probably isn't lawful to pay taxes to Caesar because God is your king, not Caesar, or, you know, something along those lines. Well, yeah, let's not forget the Pharisees <clears throat> themselves were kind of a populist group. You know, mm-hmm. they were against the Roman occupation, generally speaking. They weren't zealots. They weren't taking up the sword, but they were advocating people, you know, adopt a sort of radical, personal um, Jewish, you know, faith and morality, which sort of saw the Roman government as, it, frankly, it's really not that different than um, a proper, like, evangelical theology of politics, which is like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we live in America, but our citizenship is in heaven. Yes. So like whatever the government does, whether we oppose it or not, this isn't really our home. Um, we want to make it a good place, but it's not really, you know, yes, like, we're, we're living in exile here. We're living in exile. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're, they're, the Pharisees actually have kind of an interesting, um, the Pharisees aren't as wrong as people like to think. Jesus's main criticism of the Pharisees isn't that they're always theologically wrong, but that they're just, they don't practice what they preach, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, but so so that's my little spiel on the Pharisees. But I, I would guess mm-hmm. that, yeah, they are generally kind of against Roman taxation and probably they're debating among themselves. I don't have any historical sources right. on this, but knowing what I know about them, the Sadducees are probably 100% pro-tax because they're establishment as it gets, right? They are the, the old guard, like, you know, kind of we, we keep we keep the whatever traditions, you know, um, and the Pharisees are the people who are like, you know putting out podcasts, you know, they're the Joe Rogans of the, I <laughs> yes, can't, yes. I can't help but like can, can compare this to the modern day, but that is kind of what I it is. It, they're speaking directly to the people, people. Yeah. that the people want to know, how can I have <laughs> Jewish piety? And the Pharisees yeah. are talking to them. And so I would imagine there are debates about this, even yes. though I didn't dig into the rabbinic sources and, you know, curse, curse me for that. <laughs> now I'm just randomly guessing on our <laughs> podcast now that you brought it up. But <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, um, I don't know too much about the Sadducees, so maybe they were pro-tax, maybe they weren't. But the other thing, interestingly, likely the Herodians were at least pragmatically pro-tax. Um, <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> this is a guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> They're and, like, uh, Karen. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if they like Herod, they like the establishment guy. You know, part of the tax. You know, they they do the the Herodians do not want to upset the status quo at all. And you know, saying something like "you shouldn't pay taxes to T Caesar" is a great way to upset the status quo. Uh, and so the you know, even if the Herodians don't like paying taxes or don't like the Romans, they like the status quo and would in all likelihood not want to upset that. So. So, so, and I think that's part of why Matthew includes the Herodians in this whole thing is that you sort of have the two ideas uh, here of, you know, the religious law claim of, you know, we, it's blasphemy to pay this tax versus the Herodians of, you know, we can't upset the status quo. Don't, you know, bring the Romans down on our head and sort of however Jesus comes out on whether it's lawful to pay taxes, he's sort of stuck of, you know, either he's, you know, compromises his religious, uh, 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 you know, claims or his populist claims of, you know, being this religious teacher. Cause like, oh, what's he doing, you know, out there shilling for Rome, you know, if he comes out pro-tax, but if he comes out anti-tax, then, you know, they're going to take him to the Romans and be like this seditious person, you know, here and then, you know, kill him. So, you know, Jesus, we're sort of like, okay, Jesus, how do, how do you get yourself out of this one? Basically. Oh, he has his ways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So it's uh so how does Jesus respond? He says, you know, well, first of all, he calls them hypocrites. And so there's this great thing of like, Jesus knows their intentions, uh, which is it always stood out to me as kind of funny because we've already had several instances in the book of Matthew of Jesus demonstrating supernatural knowledge of people's intentions, like two Pharisees. So it's a little silly of like, you know, you guys already kind of have tried this sort of thing. Like, why are you doing this again? Um, it says stuff but... like he perceives in his spirit that they were, you know, thinking this, right? Yeah. And I'm just going to I'm going to go off on a limb here and I'm going to guess, although I don't I don't know that it's said specifically, but my feeling is that this wasn't Jesus relying on a supernatural knowledge. My feeling is that this was I mean, certainly the Holy Spirit is within him, but my feeling is that Jesus is just really good at reading people because he's perfect and he's yes. sinless. I think he's just really good at understanding what people's true intentions are. Yeah. Right? I I I mean, you know, it's hard to say, <laughs> but that's right. always been my guess. Like, he just knows that they're tricking him because he's brilliant and he's studied the word of God and he, he knows the intentions of people's hearts. So he doesn't need need to rely on his perfect knowledge right. necessarily to to know this. Yeah. Um, in, but, in all likelihood. I don't know. That's just my guess. That's how I like to read it, at least. Mm hmm. Right. So, so Jesus calls him out for hypocrisy. And then the next thing he says is, you know, bring me the coin for the tax. And it says, you know, and so they brought him a denarius. Um, and it, it, it's actually really interesting that we get the detail about what coin it is, because often in the, the New Testament, coins are described as like a silver coin or, you know, something like this. You don't get the actual name of what the coin was that was actually brought. And so it's really interesting here that we are told the, the the name of the specific coin. So, you know, ostensibly there's multiple kinds of coinage that are sort of floating around at the time. The and drachma. this is one. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> drachma or, you know, denarius. And, and it, depending on your translation, sometimes you get the name, sometimes you don't. But but here specifically, you do get the name. Um, and, you know, I, I did a little bit of background research on this. And uh, uh, so a denarius is, um, you know, it, it, it's about the, uh, it's about like a day's, wages um some of the commentaries i was reading estimated estimates that like in modern day dollars it'd be something like 50 cents um which <laughs> gives you a sense of like how much more wealthy our society has come become that like you know the the value of a day laborer's efforts is you know worth a lot more than 50 cents now but 
Um, but at least back in the day, this is like what you would get if you were a day laborer. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so that, that, that's kind of like the amount of money. But more importantly, I think, is what the coin actually looks like. Because it, it's, it's important that Jesus doesn't just ask them what the coin is, but he actually has them bring him the coin itself. Um, and so in, in all likelihood, this, this denarius coin would be the coin it would have had stamped on it the face of the current emperor, which in this case would be Tiberius during this, this period of time. Uh, and so it's got Tiberius's face on it. And then it also has a inscription on it. And, and Jesus actually asks them, it's like, whose likeness and inscription is on the coin? And so he's highlighting there's both like a face stamped on it and then something written on it as well. And it's really fascinating because the thing that's written on the coin is, you know, this inscription describing Tiberius. Uh, and it says that he is, it calls Tiberius God and High Priest. Um, so it calls him, you know, in this case, high priest of the, the Roman religion in this case. Um, and, and so it's really, really fascinating that it's it's this face of Caesar and this claim of he is God and high priest is like what's written on the coin. And so it, there's there's this really interesting thing of like Jesus, like everybody would have known what a denarius looked like during this time. And so it's really, it, it sticks with me that Jesus has them bring the actual coin to like hold up and show people, you, you know. It's like Jesus is sort of doing this object lesson where it's like, it's not just imagine the coin. It's like, no, look at the coin, like hold the coin up and, you know, see me, Jesus, the son of God, the true high priest, the king over everything, and hold up this like tiny silver coin with the face of this man far away who claims to be God, claims to be high priest. And, you know, and let, let's just let's put the two things up against each other and really see what the reality of the situation is. Yeah, that would be a striking picture. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you can have your your dinky coin, <laughs> right, with Tiberius's tiny little pathetic face on it. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or you could or you could worship me, the true God and king of kings on Earth. Right. Who comes yes. to crush Tiberius Caesar. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yes. it really kind of makes it stark. Now, mm. even me, like I'm, I already like Jesus, you know, but now I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, man, that really does put it in, put it in perspective. When I go on TurboTax to do my taxes, is it really worth <laughs> getting all that angry about? Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And um, you know, and and one of the other things that sticks out is the you know Jesus asked them like whose likeness and inscription. Um, and the ESV renders it likeness. Um, a lot of other translations render it um as image. Um, and that's kind of really the the word that's going on in the background. And um, particularly in biblical, you know, usage, the word image has kind of a lot of underlying kind of background meaning to it. Um, so like one of them is, you know, this this notion of, of images are connected with idolatry so that like, you know, worshiping graven images or, um, you, you know, things like this. So that image is sort of this idea of having an idol or, you know, some kind of false god, this image of it. Um, but it, uh, it also has this connection to the image of God that, you know, we as created beings are made in God's image. And so I think Matthew is kind of trying to slip a little bit in here of getting us thinking. It's, you know, you've got this image of Caesar, like this idol of Caesar that you're holding. And it's being contrasted with something because we're about to get to a contrast here. And so what is the contrasting image that's sort of floating around you know, all over the place here. Uh, and I, I think Matthew is wanting us to see the contrast of image of Caesar versus image of God. 
is the I, I think the contrast that we're getting to. And and I and I think that helps us really understand the point that Jesus is actually making here when he says, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and render to God the things which are God's, is you know, on the first level, Jesus is just answering their question. They're saying, is it lawful to pay taxes? And he says, hold up the coin, whose face is on it? Caesar's face. I mean, just give him his coin. Like, <laughs> like it, it's a simple it, it's, answer in one way. Like, it's, right. it's deceptively simple. Yes. But then he turns it around and says, but render to God the things that are God's. And it's it's this, like, lesser to greater argument that Jesus is making. It's like, if if... Caesar is owed think, this coin by virtue of his image being stamped on it. It's like, are not we then owing ourselves to God by virtue of his image being stamped in us? Yeah, I think that's the crux of this passage. That's always what I've seen as like the thing people miss. <laughs> so I'm glad yes. you brought that up. Like I mentioned earlier, there's like a hundred things people miss. This is like the big E on the I chart, the point of this passage it drives me nuts that people will read this and think like, oh, so Jesus says, pay your taxes. It's like, oh my goodness. He does say that. It's also not <laughs> yes. even like anywhere close to the main point of the passage. You're, you're completely taking out the very last phrase, the punchy yes. point that Jesus is making. And yes. to God, what is God's? Well, what is God's? Like, you, <laughs> That's not the coin. <laughs> there's, right. there's more going on to what Jesus just said than, than pay your taxes to Caesar, you know, and and so yeah, it's kind of like, used as a proof text against maybe like anti-taxation views, um, right. you know, and instead it's like, but, but you missed the, the whole point. It's like, you're, yeah. you're still making this passage about the taxation when Jesus is trying to move them away from that to a more important topic, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it let, let's, you know, may, maybe with that point, let's jump into uh, uh, saying, so then like, what does this passage actually tell us about taxation? And, you know, given the fact that, yeah, I, I would make the argument, I don't think it really does tell us all that much about taxation. And the it, it tells us some things, but not everything. And the reason why I make that point is, like, the story really is about how we owe ourselves to God. Like, we should honor God as Lord. We should not give to anyone else the things that we should give to God, namely our own lives. And it's like, and I think that's the thing that really causes the Pharisees and, and Herodians to marvel when they, you know, leave is this... This, you know, response that Jesus gives if he's making this this bigger point. And it's almost like the taxation backdrop is like incidental to the story where it, it's not e it's not even really the point that Jesus is making. It's like more. It's this masterful. Jesus is is almost sidestepping the issue to get at something else. And so it's 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 a little bit strange that we are basically falling into the same trap as. Or, or the same issue that the Pharisees and Herodians are falling into when we try to make this passage about taxation. Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to make it about taxation. And Jesus is saying, well, yes, but here's what's really important. And, <laughs> and yeah. then we're, we're over there being like, no, no, Jesus, but, but, but come back to that tax thing. Like, tell me more about the taxes. <laughs> well, so Jesus is, you know, the topic of the discussion is taxation, but the point and the theology of the passage is not. I think that's like, the, yes. you know, and I guess the way that you would describe it in like debate or logic terms would be, you know, you've got these horns of a dilemma that are about taxation. And one way that you can escape the, well, one way that you can, you know, get away from having to spear yourself on either horn of a dilemma is to just escape the horns. Right. Yes. That's what, so to just diffuse the whole situation and say, there actually aren't two sides to this question. Um, yeah. It's a false dichotomy. 
and uh you know the the answer is not either of these horns the answer is a completely different bull <laughs> with a completely different set of horns perhaps you know um, so i'm just gonna yes. ignore that's longer and much pokier <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so he's escaping the horns of a dilemma like like rhetorically that's what jesus is doing he's taking the topic and he's sidestepping it like you said but not because yeah. he doesn't have an answer he does answer their question but he also yep. kind of poo-poos the question at the same time he reveals mm-hmm. the folly of their questioning. Jesus is so good at this. Like every time he has these disputations, he just destroys the Pharisees with facts and logic. Right? Yep. It's <laughs> Utterly great. destroys them. Yes. And he he is so good at like and, and there's a, a lesson here for us in, you know, since we're talking about politics, maybe a little side lesson here that we can learn from Jesus when we talk about like difficult issues, politics, ethics, etc., with our friends and and you know, we have to we have to evaluate if a discussion is worth having. We have to evaluate when people are just using words to try to hurt people or um, try to win one over, you know, or we have to discern between someone we are disagreeing with and someone who doesn't mean well. Right. (laughs) And there's a lot of not meaning well these days in political discourse. So like, you know, it's the whole pearls before swine thing. Right. Um, Paul does similar things in Romans. He, when he's talking about people who, uh, say why not do evil that good may come if you know we're saved by faith alone right and then he mm-hmm. basically says their condemnation is just <laughs> i love yeah, that it doesn't even answer he, doesn't, like, he refuses to i mean he does answer their question later on kind of but basically right. he just says these people are, are slanderers and they their condemnation is just and they don't merit a response right and that's yes. kind of jesus's approach here it's not the same but it's the same mentality of like your guys question you're trying to kill me you're trying to betray me into the hands of people you don't even like just because you hate me so much right so i refuse to play by your game i'm going to escape the horns of this dilemma and reveal the folly of your question and that's his approach Mm -hmm. um now and jesus is a lot better at this than probably most of us are (laughs) all of us you know so um yeah and and it and it is a masterful escape from the from the dilemma because it's like you know think about the pharisees who are going to try to like use this thing it's like on the one hand jesus jesus said pay the taxes so like oh he is he is supporting the roman oppressors these blasphemous people but it's like but then if you're going to say well we shouldn't pay taxes to caesar it's like oh so do you not owe god the things that are god's and (laughs) (laughs) yeah well and and the way that he does it it's interesting like it's good that you pointed out like the that the question was whether it was lawful or not because that mm-hmm. is a very different question than whether it's right or not yeah um or partic- whether you should do it right particularly in this context it's just like is it okay to pay tax because that's an actual debate you have mm-hmm. this coin with a graven image on it right it's a yeah. caesar who considers himself to be a god and there's an inscription on it basically saying i'm god worship me right and you can yeah. easily see like let's say today if the um if the u.s dollar started becoming like much more openly blasphemous right and it like yeah. declared thomas jefferson to be a god amongst men right or whatever yes. um george washington founded the the, the you know the earth right <laughs> or like yes. whatever sort of like crazy cult of personality worship you know we might put on it then some christians would probably say like we should stop using the dollar like you know uh time to hodl some bitcoin right like yeah. we're, <laughs> like we're, you know um let's stop using it I, and it would mm-hmm. be an understandable conclusion i wouldn't agree though because of this passage in matthew jesus is sort of like disabusing his audience of this like idea that like 
because because we live in this world that is tainted with idolatry and a lot of um you know sin that we somehow like can't just live normal life the best we can you know it's like whatever it's it's caesar's image on the coin he's the one who bears the guilt for calling himself god and going around declaring himself to be this you know big shot right you're not at fault of his sin for using a coin to do commerce in the real world right and and if a tax collector comes to your door and he's gonna kill you or imprison you or whatever if you fail to pay your taxes you're not disobeying god to just pay your taxes um it's it's just a coin, right? And it's similar yeah, it's, to what Paul it, says with like meat sacrifice. Yes, idol. I was just about to say. Sounds uh, okay. like you know, is an idol anything, right? <laughs> right. It's like whatever. Eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Idols, they don't even exist, right? Like, stop putting so much stock in this thing that's that's not even real. It's meat. Thank the Lord for the meat. You know in your heart that it's not like pagan meat, right? Yeah. Even though it, it was you know sacrificed to an idol. And so, I mean, we could, we could draw similar parallels to like, you know, if you're in the stock market, you are supporting some sort of company that's doing horrendously evil things and you don't know it, right? Your mutual fund is going to some awful company. <laughs> I don't think that means you can't have a mutual fund. Just, yeah. you know, that's, that's my little two cents there. Like you, you can't help but be a part of the sinful world economy to some extent. At yeah. some point, something you're doing is affecting some other thing, which is doing something bad. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing we can do about that. That You know, Caesar put his image on the coin. God will judge him for that, not you. Mm-hmm. I guess that's that's kind of what I see here um, as something else that people might, might be missing because of that, is it lawful detail to the question? Anyways. Yeah. Oh, man, Jeremy, we're totally going to get kicked out of libertarianism for this. <laughs> <laughs> not only have we upset, you know, all of the, you know, uh, uh, anarchists you know who are staunchly against you know taxation but now we've upset the upset the agorists yeah, too. The ag- <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay they're wrong anyways so. <laughs> well but no but but agorism is biblically wrong okay let's tackle this for the for the zero people who listen that's actually not true we do have a few people listening who know what agorism is i think sorry yes uh but can you, uh, give, can you give us the 30 second version sure agorism the... is basically the the viewpoint that since the government is hopelessly corrupt we should you know live off the grid and it, it, there's different like levels of it you know like we should not take any government uh welfare for example now that would be like basic agorism but it goes all the way to like don't connect to the public water and sewer and try to avoid you know i mean you're not gonna be able to avoid like government roads or whatever but for the most part completely abstain from this system um, yeah, and it's i would basically just, opt out yeah and i don't like i don't hate agorists or anything but biblically it's not you cannot obligate people to have that viewpoint because you have like john the baptist in luke uh people are coming to him in repentance and you have like i think like a soldier comes to him um and he's like you know what should i do for repentance and the the agorist answer would be well you need to immediately stop working for the roman government are you kidding me they're mm-hmm. pagan and evil right um but john the baptist's answer is be content with your wages <laughs> which is so good it's such a good answer like you know uh mm-hmm. he's probably expecting some radical like dude take up your sword and start killing the romans because you got to join the jewish side you know yes <laughs> and, and john's just like you know you should probably uh thank the lord for the food on your plate right <laughs> so anyways agorism is unbiblical um mm-hmm. or at least it's unbiblical to require it of people i think if if your conscience is you know i want to be apart from the system 
well then that's fine you know but uh yeah uh anyways that's my little my, my little spiel you you can work for the local post office and still be a, a, an obedient faithful christian right it doesn't matter that it's part of a secular government <laughs> right well, so we've uh, so we've tackled here um, the one passage in Matthew talking about civil taxes, um, and uh, I, I think I think it leaves us actually with more questions about how we should think about taxes biblically than maybe it it answers from uh, you know what would appear to be a very clear you know render unto Caesar. It's like I feel like I'm like well. Yeah. I need to know a little bit more. So how about we dig into some other passages that also talk about taxation and see kind of what else the Bible has to say about it. So um, we're going to jump backward a few chapters here to another story that happens in the book of Matthew, which is also related to taxes. So Jeremy, how about you read us this uh, uh, next passage that we're going to here? Yeah, totally. This is a fun one. Uh, Chapter 17. So this is earlier in the gospel of Matthew. Important to perhaps uh, keep that in mind. Uh, Verses 24 through 27. And if I'm not mistaken, does this only happen in Matthew? I don't recall off the top of my head. Oh, I didn't. I didn't check. Okay. Maybe, maybe we'll pull that up in a, in a second, but, um... but well, and and actually maybe I'll give people the context. So, you know, the, the previous chapter in, uh, in 22 that we were just looking at is Jesus in Jerusalem after triumphal entry. This story that we're going to get is actually Jesus in Capernaum, which is like way to the North of Jerusalem. Um, and it's actually like a, near the end of Jesus's ministry. So it's like post transfiguration, but it's before Jesus like enters Jerusalem. So it, it's kind of like the we've just gotten Jesus who's like doing the predicting his betrayal and death to his disciples. And it's, it's the second time in Matthew that Jesus has done that. He's going to do it one more time before the actual triumphal entry. But we're like we are winding down in Jesus's ministry and like we're we're coming to the end, but it's not quite over yet. And so that is. That's sort of where we're at. So outside of Jerusalem, way to the north, near the end of the ministry, his ministry. Cool. All right. So starting in 17, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax, that's like the, the temple tax, I believe, uh, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, by the way, I think I think Peter is saying, yes, he does pay the tax. That's a little actually yes. confusing in the ESV. I'm mm-hmm. pretty certain. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, actually, let me stop for a second. Yes, I'll stop he does here. pay the tax. That's what Peter's saying. <laughs> yes. And, and the question that they're actually asking here is, uh, from the commentaries that I was reading, is really not translated well into English, in this case, to give you the, the, the nuance of what's actually happening. Apparently, in the Greek, the way that they're, that these people are asking the question is, it's much more like a... Your teacher pays this tax, right? Um, oh, oh like, so you're getting into like the the yeah the way you phrase a question in Greek to like uh, ends up impacting whether the implied answer is a yes or a no, right? Yeah, that's yeah, so a, that's they, a huge thing in Greek. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So they, they they are asking this question and expecting Peter to say yes, and he okay. does. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they did their best in the ESV. It is a little hard to get that nuance. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, for Christmas, I just got a book that's literally just about that topic, about oh, di- oh. about questions and discourse. And dude, I, I haven't started reading it yet, but I'm pretty pumped. That sounds great. <laughs> maybe maybe three months from now, we'll jump in and be like, "Oh, we got this passage all wrong." Um, <laughs> there we go. We'll just we'll, we'll we'll cut in right here and re-upload the video with Jeremy from the future if we were super wrong. <laughs> Anyways, um, 
yes it's a fascinating thing in in greek uh, analysis but uh, okay so peter just said yes he does pay this two drachma tax um and when he came into the house jesus spoke to him first saying what do you think simon from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others and when he said from others jesus said to him then the sons are free however not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. All right. Kind of so, crazy, huh? Like, you got to yeah. do your taxes, just go fishing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, you know, if, if we were if we were uh, uh, want to doing like hyper allegorical interpretations, maybe there is something here of. If you, you need to pay your taxes, maybe you just need to work, you know, go go out and get a job or, you know, something like that, which <laughs> I, I do not think that's what this passage is saying. Uh, yeah, no. Hello there, origin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, just maybe a few details for helping us understand. Um, so we have two drachma, the two drachma tax um, in this case. Um, and this is uh, referring to, you're, you're correct, Jeremy, it's, it's the, the, the quote temple tax, which is what is being discussed here. So... It's um it's a levy that was um put upon people, but it's a it's specifically like a religious levy, and so there isn't any necessarily like civil punishment for it. It's not like the Romans are going to come and you know kick down your door if you don't pay the temple tax, um, and so maybe tax isn't quite the best way of describing it. Um, but there's a there's a whole lot of social pressure for people to pay the temple tax. Um, kind of the idea is it's it's based off of a passage in Exodus where um, the people of Israel are um, required to pay um, uh, like a certain sum of money for the upkeep of the temple. And it sort of then got interpreted as this ongoing thing where people are, are to pay a small sum of money yearly for the purpose of being able to maintain the upkeep of the temple. And and it, it kind of became this symbol in societally of a way of like expressing your support for the religious system of Israel. Um, and, you know, some people would kind of see it as this, you know, you're, you're fighting against the Romans or subverting the Romans by, you know, supporting the, the temple is, is kind of a little bit of what's going on in the background here. Um, and so, you know, when, when they cruise up to Capernaum again, which is pretty far away from Jerusalem, uh, uh, it's, you know, probably there's this guy in a booth near the entrance of the city who will, you can come there sometime during the year and give him the two drachma tax, and then he'll, like, take it down to Jerusalem for you. So you don't necessarily need to go to the temple yourself. Um, and, and so that's kind of what's going on here. Um, one of the other pieces is um, a drachma. It turns out is about the same um, amount of money as a denarius. So it's again, it's about a day's wages. So in this case, actually, it's it's twice as much as the Roman tax that gets talked about later. So it's it's a two day wage tax, not a one day wage tax. Um, so that's that's one piece. And then maybe the final piece, and then we can stop talking about like the finances that are going on here, <laughs> is uh, when you know Peter opens the mouth and get or when Jesus says you'll open the mouth and find a shekel. Um, it turns out a shekel is about four drachmas worth of money, uh, and so it was exactly the right sum to pay. Peter's temple tax and Jesus's temple tax. And so that's kind of what's going on here is there's that. So, but Jeremy, maybe talk to us a little bit about what is the analogy that Jesus is using in the middle of this story and kind of what is his point that he's talking about here? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, th this passage can probably go in lots of directions. So um, I'm curious to see where we go with this because I think there's a lot going on. Um, but so Jesus asks Peter, you know, 
so when the kings of the earth, so he's here, he's talking about Herod, he's talking about civil rulers, Tiberius, right? Uh, he asks Peter who they tax, who, you know, whom are taxed by these rulers? Do they tax their own sons? Or do they tax other people? <laughs> it's a really easy question. Like, Peter <laughs> yes. probably thinks like, oh, I finally know the answer to this one. Right? Like, yes. man, my, my master is going to be so proud of me. Um, <laughs> and he gets right. to look good in front of the disciples. It's, you know, it's, yeah, it's great. Like, Rabbi, pick on me. I get a gold star, right? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so he just answers from others, you know, and it's like total, total, uh, you know, uh, easy it's question. It's a Sunday school answer. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. It's like he answers Jesus. It's like, wait, 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 no. <laughs> God? <laughs> so, so yeah, so Peter gives the obvious answer that Jesus is kind of just doing this rhetorically, right? Um, Peter says, well, obviously it's from other people, not from their own children. And then Jesus says to him, well, then the sons are free. Uh, okay, so the sons aren't taxed. What's your point, Jesus, right? That's obvious. That's just how the way the world works. But then Jesus doesn't comment on it any further. He's just done. He doesn't say anything else. He just says, go catch this fish and then you'll have the tax money and give it to them. Um, and then you can cover my tax and yours. So while, while you're at it, Peter, why don't you, <laughs> you know, cover me, right? <laughs> I got important yeah. things to do here. I'm the rabbi. Right? <laughs> like, I'll do the miracle, but you got to go catch the fish, man. Like, I, <laughs> I just love these little moments with Jesus and his disciples. It's it's so funny. Like, imagine mm-hmm. being Peter. Um, but uh, so... So, but Jesus doesn't actually explain this analogy. He just says, yeah, well, the kings don't tax their own sons, do they? And uh, what's interesting here is, well, so let's think about the, the temple tax. You know, if you were, say, a Levite, so someone part of the tribe of Levi, whose literal job it was to, you know, keep the upkeep of the temple, then you were not subject to the same taxation uh, and in general, a lot of the same laws as were you know, people of the other tribes of Israel, right? So, so there is this idea that, um, that, uh, some people are taxed and others aren't taxed. Some are obligated and some are not. Uh, and in civil rulership, kings of the earth, their sons don't pay taxes, uh, but others do. And when it comes to the temple, which is the topic of discussion here, this is the kind of tax, um, some are, are exempt from the tax and others aren't. There's a concept for that in the old Testament, uh, but then Jesus is bringing this up in this context, but he doesn't explain it. And that's why I think it could go in lots of directions. I will say how I've always understood it, or at least always. I mean, ever since I first thought deeply about this passage, and then I'm curious if you disagree, John. Okay. Um, yeah. Hit me with it. Yeah. But the way I've always understood it is basically, you know, he's implying that he is this, you know, priest, right? Jesus is the great high priest. So he is exempt from the temple tax rightfully because he, you know, is, is analogous to this, you know, group of Levites, right? Um, he would, he would be exempt from the tax. And by extension, his disciples would also be free from the tax because after all, you know, we could bring in other theology here. You know, we are Christ's brothers from Hebrews too, but just, you know, in general, he doesn't say then the son is free. He says the sons are free. I think mm-hmm. Jesus is implying, especially because Peter's tax is in view here as well, that that Peter is also exempt from the temple tax rightfully. And then he goes on to say, but in order to not give offense to them, go catch this fish and pay our tax. So he says, like, this tax shouldn't be binding on us because we are, after all, the true inheritors of everything that the temple means, you and I, Peter. But... 
there's no reason to cause undue offense, right? They don't get that yet. So let's just go pay the tax. <laughs> it's like a pragmatic sort of concession um, to the circumstances. Uh, that's how I've always seen it. So I, I don't think this passage is, is in general saying that like taxes are, are always wrong um, or it's like, like it's never okay for a government to tax. I think that would be pushing the text beyond what it says. I think what Jesus is saying is the temple tax is unjust on people who literally are going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit <laughs> once I resurrect and bring the Spirit on Pentecost, right? Mm -hmm. um, I th I've always understood it that way. Uh, yes, maybe I, I, that I think, made sense. Maybe it didn't. No, no, but... I, I, th I think you did a great job. Um, and I, I think I, I generally agree with the, the points that you'd make there. I, I, I think the direction that I would go with it is I'd say, um, I'm not sure that this passage is even talking about civil taxation at all um because the there um or in you know and maybe you could loop some of it in because it, it, there wasn't as as fine of a distinction between civil and religious authorities back in the day but but i i think the the point really that jesus is making is about our financial obligations and you know it, that where taxation is one of those obligations, this temple tax is one of those obligations. And, you know, what Jesus is saying is, I think you're exactly right, that, that Jesus himself, and by extension his disciples as being part of God's family, are not obligated to pay God's tax, you know, kind of in, in this sense. But to say that, I think there is kind of this backdrop of saying, well, maybe there are some finan financial obligations that are binding on people. Um, you know, it, not this one necessarily. And, you know, and there's an argument why this one would not be binding on us, but maybe there are some that are binding on people. And so I'll just kind of let that sit there and we'll come back to it in a little bit. Um, but more importantly, uh, Jesus makes this really big pragmatic argument that <laughs> he says, it's not binding, but you should pay it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that's actually probably going to be the more important thing to draw from this passage today. Yes. You know, and it's specifically it's so as to not offend them or so as not to give offense. Um, and from the reading that I was doing is I think we should understand the them in this case to be referring to like broadly the people who live in Capernaum. Um, Capernaum? Capernaum? I, I always go back I and forth. I say Capernaum. Potato, okay. potato. Capernaum. Uh, I'll shorten it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the people of Capernaum. And... Um, it, it, you know, so that there's the sense in which, oh, Jesus is not paying the temple tax, that that would be something that would be offensive to people of like, what, you know, are you not, are you not for the temple? Or are you not for a religious system? Like, you know, are you, a, are you a dissident against this thing that God has given to us? You know, it could be a, what someone might think. Um, and, and I think that it's important that Jesus is, you know, Jesus is definitely not, doesn't have a problem with offending people. Uh, if there's, you know, if he has some strategic value for doing so, like <laughs> right. we're about, to... yeah. it's unusual to see Jesus <laughs> saying, "Hey, just let's not be offensive. Right? Let's yeah, not get like... carried away now, here, Peter." <laughs> right? Yeah, Je Jesus offends tons of people and does it intentionally. Um, uh, but that that Jesus seems to be making this other point of, but there's sometimes when it's not worth it to offend people that. I, which I think is kind of what Jesus is saying is that in this case, like, just like, just pay the tax. It's not that much money. Um, you know, just do it because it like people aren't going to understand and they're going to be offended by it. And it's not worth it to have this be the hill that we're dying on or, you know, that we're going to be spending the next week and a half explaining to people why 
you know, we're not obligated to pay the temple tax or, you know, something like that. If like, it's not worth it. There's, there's bigger fish to fry. Just pay the tax. Yeah, absolutely. I think here we see the pragmatic nature of what Jesus is saying when it comes to our obligations, you know, to authority. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I, I agree with you when you pointed out that civil and religious authority are not so separated here. I mean, this is a tax. Okay. This isn't a tithe. When we go to church, we can pay a tithe and, but no one comes to our door if we don't. Right. Like yeah. it's an ethical thing. It's between us and God. This is a tax. Okay. <laughs> like I, I don't know exactly all the details of the system, but presumably you could get thrown in jail for failing to pay it if you're a Jew. Right. Cause this is your temple. Um... Presumably, yeah, or get, you could get sure. punished in some way. I, yeah, at the very least, there would be a massive social blowback, which I think is Jesus' point that right. he says of, yeah, to yeah, not yeah. give offense. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. whether or not there would be a civil punishment, I, I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, it gets complicated and, and there's, you know, because you have like provincial Jewish rulers who actually do have authority to kind of like make you do Jewish things if you're a Jew, even mm. though it's under the Roman government. It's kind of complicated. Um <clears throat> politically uh so i don't i don't know all the details off the top of my head um but uh but this is a tax that's the point it, like this yeah. uh, there's not too much of a distinction between civil and religious authorities it's certainly not in the sense we would think uh in the 21st century with separation of church and state that concept is non-existent and yeah. it won't be existent for another nearly two millennia <laughs> yeah. um from the moment this you know this pericope happens um <laughs> so so yeah so i don't know you, you have this pragmatic understanding of like yeah you're not um you're not doing anything wrong to just kind of go with the flow there's some things that are outside of your control right and there are some hills that are not worth dying on even if it would be better if this weren't the case right maybe yeah. the children are exempt but look at the end of the day it's just money it's not you. It's not your soul, right? It's yeah. it's something that you can give up for a greater cause. Um, and so just pay the stupid tax, right? And I think yeah. in this way, even though this is talking about a more religious tax, I think it's very similar to Jesus's approach with the render to Caesar. I think it's like, what? Mm -hmm. Caesar's image is on it? Fine. Then give him his coin. Like, is this really worth <laughs> like having a revolt and a war over so that we kill each other? Or like, you know, is there something more important going on here? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, I see this passage sometimes used. I've read libertarian arguments for why this passage, like, makes all taxation theft. And I'm like, no, you're just you're you're doing something with the passage that's not there. As much as I would love for that verse to be in the Bible. Oh, it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> it'd be so great. This whole episode would be so much more simple. Yep. Um, I, look, it's it's my bias, too, but I just don't think that's here. Um. Jesus just isn't going to do what you want him to do with this topic. He kind of evades it. He doesn't make a statement about whether it's right for the Roman government to tax or not. He just says, that's the situation you're living in, and it's a stupid hill to die on. That's yeah. basically what I would summarize these two passages as saying, as far as Jesus's view on taxation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think, and I think in a sense that kind of answers the question of like, how should we think about taxes? Uh, maybe it's a stupid hill to die on, but I, I, there's, there's one more passage that I want us to get to because I, I, I think there, there's a little bit more that we can squeeze out of the Bible in terms of what it has to say about taxation and how we should understand it. So I, we're going to return now to Romans 13 
um, you know, from our, our last episode, we're going to, we're going to take off the last two verses, um, and sort of end the section before Paul kind of transitions to other things. Um, so just recall from last episode that we talked about Romans 13 and you, you get this idea that people should be in, um, uh, that people should be subjected to authority because authority is from God. And, you know, it goes through and, um, and we, we basically kind of made the argument that, uh, that there's, there's this idea that authorities, even if they're not like perfectly righteous or good are still things that are instituted by God for the purpose of promoting like societal goods like they punish evil and reward the good so like they are servants of god even if they aren't like trying to be necessarily or even if they're not conscious of it and by virtue of that you should be in subjection to them you know it says not only to avoid uh, verse five ends you know therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid god's wrath or just wrath in this case um not only to avoid wrath but also for the sake of conscience so it's like you know be in subjection because you don't want to be punished, and likely the kind of non-subjection subjectiony thing that you would do would be evil anyway, and so you'd be violating your conscience, which kind of connects with Paul's point earlier in chapter twelve of don't do evil things, do good things, um, and he's sort of looping it in here. And so, primarily, there's this idea of like don't do evil things, you know, don't provoke, you know, these rulers to punish you because you know, like like don't don't go there is kind of basically paul's point broadly and you know and we took we we made a little bit of application to the present day which we'll kind of get to um uh, uh maybe at the end of the episode here but that's a little bit of the context so with that you know we we sort of end with this therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid god's wrath but also for the sake of conscience and then we turn to verse six so jeremy could you read us verses uh, six and seven from romans 13 yes okay for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Thank you. So the reason why I was so excited to get to this is Paul is actually giving us a reason why we should pay taxes, where Jesus is, you know, really more making primarily pragmatic arguments. I mean, he he sort of asserts that Caesar is owed by virtue of the coin being his. Um, but but Paul actually here is actually giving us justification for taxes. He says, for because of this, um, namely the, you know, uh, the, the rulers being the ones who, you know, reward evil and punish good, or sorry, have it backwards. Um, punish evil and reward good. It's like, for this reason, you also pay taxes. So so Paul's actually making an argument to justify his claim that you should pay taxes. And so let's maybe get into that a little bit and figure out what 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 does Paul really mean and what is his argument that he's kind of making here. But I, I sort of wanted to highlight that for people um, sort of up front. So he says, for this you pay taxes. And it says, for the authorities, these rulers, are ministers of God. Now, it, it, this isn't the first time that we've been, we've had this description of rulers and their relationship with God. In verse 4, we had rulers being described as God's servants. Um, and so, in this passage, so, uh, these rulers are their God's servants and ministers of God. Um, and those words like servant and minister are, are interesting because they frequently kind of have religious associations. Um, especially kind of in the present day, we would a lot of times understand, you know, being God's servant or being a minister of God as something that's primarily religious in nature. 
And so it's, it's interesting that they're described, that the rulers are described in this way. Uh, it almost kind of has this religious connotation to it. Now, we should be a little bit careful uh, about uh, trying of like importing our like present day theological understanding of a word like back into the text, uh, which we've talked about a lot before of, you know, <laughs> over theologizing terminology. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's like in, it's kind of like James. our read the Old Testament that used yeah. to be the we'd say that on every podcast. I feel like recently every podcast has been don't overinterpret one word right, right with modern theological understandings when the Greek doesn't mean that. Right. I'm standing on this hill screaming this, right? <laughs> you and I together, we want the world to know. Yeah, standing <laughs> on your hands, standing on your feet. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the so so if you if you look at like the the, the word servant, um, and for this I, I like I used some uh, some Greek tools. Um, I don't know Greek. I don't read Greek or anything like that. I'm relying pretty heavily on lexicons here. All right, I'm um, ready this to is, critique you. Yes, yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy's going to keep me honest. Um, so just up front, uh, I'm a layman. But the if if you look at the the, the Greek word uh, here that's rendered as servant, um, it's uh, diakonos, which is where we get the 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 English word deacon. So when it says like he's God's servants, it's like it's God's deacon would be sort of a, a, a overly weird or like an overly wooden way of translating it. Um, but, you know, again, like deacon it sort of has religious connotations for us now. And it turns out that the actual word diakonos doesn't really necessarily carry any of that specific religious connotation. Um, the word really just kind of means like servant or assistant, um, kind of like a personal aid. The, the idea is that it's like it's someone who does like action on behalf of you. So the way that like a personal servant would like organize your calendar or like write memos for you or like go to a place and do a task on your behalf. Um, yeah, like it doesn't always mean a deacon, like an ordained yeah. person who has to follow the qualifications in First Timothy 3. Right. And, I mean, and, and this does actually, it's pretty important debate because you have Phoebe described as a diakonos in, in, um, Romans 16 and then that that it gets used in the debate concerning whether women should be deacons or not whether you know that's a valid biblical category and it's like well Phoebe's a diakonos but does that mean she's a deacon or does that mean she's like a servant and well that's a good debate you know that's a <laughs> yeah it's a, it's important to not over theologize terms have i have i said that enough yet <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> allow the words to mean what they meant to the original audience <laughs> right yeah, and, and, and so in this case, it, it, it's important that it, it's not deacon, it's really more just kind of like servant or assistant. Now, um, importantly, if you're reading the ESV, this is something that I think is important to point out, is the ESV um, renders the Greek word for slave as servant. So if you're like reading at the beginning of Romans 1, it says, Paul, you know, the servant of Jesus Christ. Um, where it, really it's like Paul, the slave of, of Jesus Christ. And you can read in the foreword of the ESV of why they, they chose to, to translate things that way. But the, the thing that I'm pointing out is they're in this case, they're not saying that rulers are God's slaves. They're his servants. So mm -hmm. not like in bonded servitude to him, but that they're like assistants, like doing things on his behest um, is sort of the idea. And, you know, and, and this is connected with Paul's other broad, more broad point of like the rulers are doing something for like on God's behalf of namely rewarding good and punishing evil, that they like have a specific task that they're supposed to do. And that's the sense in which they're God's servant. Hey, for someone who doesn't know Greek, that was pretty good lexical analysis, might hey, I say. Hey, thank you. Thank good, you, Jeremy. Good word study. You don't need to know the grammar to be able to distinguish between doulos and, 
and Diakonos. You did a good job. So. Yay! Sweet. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the second thing, so that, that's servants of God. Now we come to ministers of God, which is an even more kind of like religiously potent description. And so maybe you're thinking, well, maybe now we can, we can bring our, our theology understandings. And the answer is still no. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the word ministers here, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Um, Latergoy. Later goy. Yeah. The, well, I, well, I, I would need to look at the actual Greek word, but. Sure. Go, okay. Goy would be correct because that's plural. So ministers. Oh, hey. <laughs> okay, perfect. Uh, I copy and pasted it from uh, BDAG properly then. <laughs> uh, no, um, the uh, so, so the description of ministers, if you kind of like look up its usage, um, it actually is in the Old and New Testament usage primarily a religious term. So it's the the word that gets used to describe like priests in the Old Testament. Well, specifically in this in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, uh, but then also in the New Testament referring to priests. Um, so this is in places where you would see it, you know, like they minister before the Lord um, or ministers of God, um, you know, referring to priests. In that case, the minister there is the same Greek word here for minister. Um, there are a couple instances where this minister language gets used for like non-priestly activities, um, but the vast majority of the uses are specifically priestly. Um, now the uh, and and kind of the idea, if I believe the the Greek lexicons that I was reading, is that the the notion here of ministering is it it, it has the specific connotation of like doing a public service for someone. So. In the way that, like, when priests minister before the Lord, it's they're, like, doing a public service, like, on behalf of Israel before God. That's the sense in which they are ministers or ministering. Um, we also get the same idea in English, in, um, like, describing uh, uh, different, like, governing authorities, actually. Uh, it's interesting. So, um, like, in uh, the British system, you have, like, the Minister of the Interior, or the Minister of Defense, or, you know, various ministries as, like, government organizations. Uh, and, and it's actually the same idea here of it's this person who is doing a public service or a public work, like on behalf of a group of people is really kind of the idea of what's going on. So you mean we could call them deacons? <laughs> the no, deacon no, of totally the interior? The de okay, that's pretty cool, though. I kind of I kind of <laughs> do want to start doing that. Maybe um, I'd, I'd like the government more if we just like put a more positive spin on it, right? The deacon. <laughs> the deacon of foreign affairs the, no, uh, the, the, the deacon of, of investigation <laughs> the central deacon agency <laughs> yes like what I love the deep state now <laughs> <laughs> yes so in, in this case when Paul is so we're kind of doing a bit of a deep dive because I think this is really important um, is that being described as ministers of God even though minister can be non-religious in its usage, um, I, I think Paul actually does kind of mean us to understand this as slightly religious uh, or having religious connotations. Like, not saying that um, ruling authorities are priests or, you know, anything like that, or that they have some kind of, like, official religious capacity, but rather that he's using language that evokes in our minds the image of priests, you know, those who minister before God. And he wants us to think categorically like that about ruling authorities. So that in the same way that priests are doing this public service before God on behalf of the people, ruling authorities 
do like public service on behalf of you know the people before god and that i like i think paul really is trying to have us kind of make that make a little bit of that connection you know not not saying that they're officially religious leaders but that they they function in the same kind of way before god that priests do yeah so they yeah so it's not that they're religious leaders but that they are servants of god in the sense that they they do god's bidding in some way right they they have an official an official position of some sort that is recognized by the the people and in that position they do something on god's behalf and kind of like we said in the last episode like hitler was a diakonos of god right like the you know even evil rulers are doing something Mm -hmm. in place of god they're just doing so evilly right like so so that's not saying that like you know they're good people (laughs) they're not necessarily making the claim that like you know tiberius caesar is a cool dude um and that he should quote unquote be the the caesar right it's just saying that they are performing this service you know on god's behalf of some sort that's kind of how i'm understanding it um so it's not religious but it is using the term in a very very analogous way to the civil realm what the term is used of in priests uh, for priests in the religious realm am i getting that right yes Yes, no no i i think that's exactly the 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 thing that's going on and like it's more than just you did something to help somebody like diakonos can mean that but it it seems to have a more serious spin in this passage and i would agree because of the way it talks about being a servant of god i mean you know Mm -hmm. it's not just like they do some things right (laughs) right yes it's like you know all christians are servants of god in the sense that we're like you know doing you know like doing things on god's behalf but not all of us are like ministers of god you know we're not all rendering the public service before god in the same way that like you know we would say that like you know pastors or elders or overseers or kind of whatever term you know you want to use in that case there there is a sense in which they are ministers of god in a way that lay people are not ministers of god like there is actually kind of a distinction there even mm. if both could rightly be called god's servants and i think there's the same thing that's going on here it's not just that they're servants they are ministers in this kind of other more nuanced capacity of rendering public service yeah interesting and and we get more of this because we're told you know it's uh um you know you for this reason you pay taxes for their ministers of god attending to this very thing um so you know attending to the thing of again this is punishing evil rewarding good and so paul's even like telling us like what is the public service that they're rendering it's this punishing evil rewarding good uh, and like that is the service that they do, the public service that they do on, you know, on God's behalf. And so then Paul then makes this pivot and he says, so pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And he kind of goes on from there. And so he's making this argument that basically that by virtue of ruling authorities being ministers of God, they are owed taxes. Like, I mean, that's, that's what Paul's point is right here. And checkmate libertarians. (laughs) Right. So, so let's just be really clear. Paul is absolutely saying that you should pay ruling authorities. Like they they are owed taxes. That's an important nuance that isn't said in the Matthew passages. He says they're owed it. Yes. Like it's not just do it pragmatically. They're owed it. Yeah. And, and you might be able to make some kind of argument about the word render to Caesar that, 
render sometimes has connotation of like duty that like you're you're to give because it's owed but even that one is like i i can kind of see it but but here it's like way more explicit like paul is just saying they're owed taxes so give them what they're owed they're Um, owed respect and honor as well it says yes yeah um but the interesting part is again because paul's told us why they're owed the taxes and it's because they're ministers of god and so let's maybe do a little bit of analogy work here to maybe understand more of what paul is actually saying and so in, in this case plenty of other places in the new testament we get examples of uh, like us being told that we have financial obligations to ministers of god so you know you get the the famous passages of like you know don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain where paul uses that to make application of you should pay your pastors and elders like you should financially support them or you know that he, he does that also with you know the you know this idea of the worker's worth is wage and there's plenty of other places where we're told to honor our, you know, overseers and elders um, and to financially support them. Like there's all of these obligations that we as lay people are owing to the people who are are like ministers of God in the religious sense of that word. Um, and similarly, there were the same kind of uh, uh, obligatory duties in the Old Covenant as well. Like we just talked about the temple tax, that there was an um, obligation to support the priests, the ministers of God in the Old Testament, and the same kinds of obligations still exist in the New Testament as well. It's, you know, just overseers and elders in this case. And so and so here's why I think it's important that Paul is wanting us to think like, like elder when we hear minister of God referring to over or referring to rulers. Because I, I think his point is that basically like the reason why we owe pastors and overseers like like financial support is because they're doing like something for God on our behalf is it's like, you know, they're, they, they are shepherding us as our leaders and, you know, like caring, like caring for our souls, like preaching the word to us and like doing these tasks to serve us as their parishioners. And so they are then entitled to financial support by virtue of that. So because they are doing this public service, they are owed financial compensation by us. So, Kind of how I'm understanding this is what makes this interesting is Paul's argument is not you owe your pastors with your very soul. Therefore, I'm going to throw you in prison if you don't give money to Mm -hmm. your pastor or to me. Right. No. Instead, he says you have an ethical obligation to do this. And then he makes an argument. Right. Don't muzzle the ox while it treads. I mean, the muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain thing is, you know, uh, a really, really big moment for him. It's it's, you know, like. Let the let the ox that's working for you eat. It's good for you and for the ox, right? It's good yeah. for everybody when you when you fulfill your ethical financial obligations, right? Mm-hmm. So what I find interesting is that um, we're talking about this whole idea of being owed, but the government doesn't do that. They throw you in prison <laughs> if you don't pay your yes. taxes, right? It is for them. It is not so much an ethical obligation, although they will propagandize people into thinking that mm-hmm. it is a like do this or we'll throw you in prison sort of thing. I yes. mean, they're, they're happy to make it a pragmatic thing. If you don't believe it's an ethical thing. <laughs> right. But um, Paul is saying it actually is ethic an ethical thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I think it's important to point out here because we are talking about like the relationship between these two realms yes. that regardless of the ethics of the civil rulers, taxing people, Paul doesn't think that the kingdom of God operates that way. 
Yes. Yes. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's another important observation is, is the financial obligations are, uh, yeah, there's no penalty. There's no temporal penalty associated with them in the new Testament. Like it, like even in the, the old covenant where you, you, you might have some kind of penalty for not paying, you know, uh, an obligation in the new Testament, it's all voluntary. It's like, you know, the Lord, uh, it, uh I'm pulling it off the top of my head, but it's Second like Corinthians uh, nine, I think is what you're thinking. Thank the, you. Yes. Um, the, not giving uh reluctantly or under compulsion yes yeah for the lord loves a cheerful giver you know right and so like it's the this whole point idea is you should want to give right yes yeah yeah, yeah. uh and, and so it's the i and and so in that case like the kingdom of god operates in that kind of very voluntaristic um or voluntary maybe that's the right word i'm getting my terms tossed around but <laughs> the it's a, it's a voluntary thing like you should want to do this it's good you should you should long to do this good thing and I think we should understand this. And so even though the state doesn't operate in a voluntary manner, it's not like, oh, pay the taxes if you want to or not. It's, you know, pay the taxes or we're going to throw you in prison. But Paul's still making the argument of like, yeah, but it's still good to do it. And it actually, in Paul's mind, it almost seems like it doesn't matter if the government is forcing you to do it or not. Because Paul is concerned about your heart primarily in this section in Romans. He wants you to be doing the right thing to be you know serving the lord and honoring the lord with your bodies and with everything that you do and so for him it, like the point really is like you should have the right posture about doing this thing yeah definitely it's not um again and this is why i i, I think we made it kind of clear in the first three episodes i think we talked about it a lot in our first part in this series just yeah. this idea of like we're not trying to import modern political concepts into scripture. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and there's not necessarily one correct political viewpoint that a Christian can hold. Um, and I, yeah, I just, when we come to this passage, I think we are, we are mistaking really any of these three passages we've looked at today. If we view them as trying to give us a theology of taxation, <laughs> none yes. of these are about that, which, you know, and, and, and I would say this one is the most about that. The, but. It's the most about that, but it's not. And even like the term they're owed it doesn't necessarily mean that like ultimately they have the right to do it. It's just more that like, you know, socially it's expected that you do it politically. Like you're going to be in trouble if you don't. They are owed it. Okay. Even if in God's viewpoint, Caesar shouldn't be taking your money. Right. Which I would say is true, actually. Um, mm -hmm. Most likely true, at least. You're still, they're still owed it. They understand it as they're owed it. They'll send their goons after you if you don't. It's expected that you do it. For all intents and purposes, they're owed it. Like, and you can pontificate and, and, and philosophize as much you want about whether Caesar has the right to do it or not. But guess what? He's doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yes like it's it's very much like i don't know jesus and paul aren't aren't going into esoteric political philosophy ever they never do that right that this is a contemporary thing we're imposing on them mm -hmm. they're just saying look he wants the money <laughs> and like you don't have i mean what are you going to do about it like you know and, and, and his face is on the coin his face <laughs> is on the coin it's 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 actually such a like I don't want to say it this way because it makes it sound blasphemous, but it's almost like a dumb argument. It's like what your hick cousin would say, right? It's like such sure. a like silly, you know, but it's actually a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of course it is because it's Jesus's point. Right. But it, <laughs> yes. As someone who likes to think of myself as like an intellectual and I read philosophy <laughs> and politics, it's yeah. kind of simple and dumb. And, and that's actually revealing that I'm dumb, right? right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because my head's in the clouds instead of in the real world. 
Right. right. It's, yeah. it's a rebuke <laughs> on me that it comes across as, as unsophisticated. That's a better word right. for it. Unsophisticated. It's not dumb, certainly, but, it, but it's also not, you know, um, Aristotle or Spinoza, you know, getting at the very meaning of, of, and the essence of things themselves. Right. Um, right. Cause, cause I mean, cause we're, we, we are the Pharisees asking if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. I mean, we're not <laughs> trying to trap Jesus and kill him, but I mean, like, we, we are that person, you know? <laughs> we're talking about the wrong topic. Like, yes. we're altogether <laughs> interested in the wrong things, you know? Yes. Um, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, you know, that maybe that's a better way of putting it um, than saying it's dumb. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's true. They're just trying to deal with the real world. You know, yeah. um, and but here's the thing that's interesting about that um, is that that means that we we actually are free biblically to have a lot of different opinions on these things. Mm -hmm. Christians probably shouldn't agree on everything. It's going to depend on our context. Like Martin Luther had a very different understanding of the way that the government and the church ought to operate together than I do. And I think that's totally fine. I, I mean, Luther lived in a very different era. Perhaps in his era, the, the conclusions he came to were what were best for the church. Um, and sure. so I can learn from him and, and then like also have a different opinion and that's okay because we're not talking about some major core issue of the faith here. We're trying to just apply Christian principles to the world around us. Um, so when we read, I don't know, so I'm sort of getting off on a tangent. Um, although maybe we're at that point of the episode anyways, where we can start wrapping up, uh, and yeah. go on tangents, but I just think, um, it's interesting we've looked at all these passages today and my opinion is sort of like yeah well pay your taxes and that's about all they say <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like pay your taxes and and you know the authorities are there and they they ought to punish evil and reward good and to whatever extent they do that and your taxes are going to fund that you're obeying god right um yeah and don't don't die on this hill perhaps um mm -hmm. but then we get into questions of like well the american revolution was quite literally dying on this hill. Like, yes, it was a tax dying. Like, like, some people died on hills, literal hills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> some Minutemen died on hills because we didn't like being taxed, right? Yeah. Or yeah. Our, our forebears here in America didn't. Um, and I would argue that's totally fine and actually not against the spirit of these passages <laughs> at all. But how all right, do I get me, there? Right? Yeah, give me, give me your pitch, Jeremy. Give me your pitch. <laughs> well, <laughs> I so, to say, well, let, let me maybe rephrase it before you get in, get into it. Is we're saying, on the one hand, these passages a thousand percent tell you to pay your taxes. And they also even give justification that rulers are, in some sense, owed taxes. And at the same time, we're also saying the American taxation system is theft and evil. Right. <laughs> and back in the 1770s or whatever, the declaration was signed, you know, that it was also theft. And they also had every yeah. right to... to um, to start a war over it so uh, I, I think so how do we how do we stitch all of those things together of it both being commanded you know in, in some sense like the, the, there being this interpretation of it saying it's commanded and then also saying but it's also theft right yeah well so simply put like these passages don't say anywhere really that civil authorities have like the objective moral right to take money from people by threat of violence they don't say that that's right to do that um and I don't think the scriptures really um, generally teach that. Now, there is in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, there are taxes. So those are just. Um, so I guess we can't say like objectively that all taxation is theft from a Christian perspective mm -hmm. because God has taxes in the law of Moses. Um, but we certainly can make the argument that the present system we're under is 
corrupt and unjust and has forfeited its right to rule us, including the right to to extract taxes from the people. And mm-hmm. I, I think the argument for that would just be the same argument as the one we made last episode about like, yeah, authorities can be overthrown justly. And in fact, many times that has happened in history. And I would say the American Revolution is one of those. I don't think it's actually that important to get into the details of it. I would just say that as a general Yeah, you can listen to our last episode if you want us to talk more about it, but... Yeah, we talked a little bit about it. Uh, I don't think the details actually matter that much. I, I mean, certainly if a government is not unjust, if a government is approximately just, you shouldn't overthrow it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think there could be a lot of different circumstances that could, you know, render a government unjust and therefore worthy of being overthrown. And I don't think as Christians we can guess all the circumstances that might lead to that i mean um the last two years have seen governments doing things that no government has ever done in the history of of our you know fallen human race i mean we're we're living in a very different era as of march 2020 so Mm -hmm. therefore we ought to be producing different political philosophy uh as christians about what to do about it i mean Mm -hmm. i think i don't think it should look exactly like the the political philosophy of 2019 or of Martin Luther or of Augustine. Um, and so uh, we, we don't know the circumstances that will come, right? right. Um, like, you know, the church literally cannot meet because a virus exists. Well, that's, I mean, you know, cr- church has been canceled before because of the bubonic plague, but I, I don't believe there was like a government edict for literally a year plus i mean maybe a week i don't know i don't think there's any analog to what we're going through right now in history in other words yeah so my whole my whole point is like we have to be open to um critical thinking about the era we live in and applying our scriptural knowledge to okay so what do we do you know i don't know i don't know what to do i don't have any answer um i do think that you know the church should meet and uh and civil disobedience should should be used i don't think that necessarily means we need to overthrow the government right so but i don't know maybe someone has a good argument for it i don't know um i don't uh i'm just trying to do what i can um and now i'm on a watch list uh, <laughs> i mean I, i'm yes. literally saying i don't know i don't i don't probably think yes. that's wise to do but in the in the, to days the fbi of the, agent who's watching this later <laughs> in the days of the american revolution though they just said hey this sucks and we don't like it and we're gonna overthrow this government and i think that's fine i think that's totally fine um, it just, you know, it, it uh, depends on all the historical circumstances. Um, yeah. And I think and, one thing uh, I'm getting at, too, is that there's a difference between Paul and Jesus telling you as a Christian to pay your taxes because you as an individual are powerless to change the state of the world, right? There's a difference between that and like, hey, we have this organized militia of Minutemen with muskets who can just drive the British off. We could win this, right? Like we could actually change it. Um, mm-hmm. that's very different. You're talking about a corporate group of people here, separate from the church, by the way, that's pretty crucial. If you ask me separate from the church, but yeah. many of whom might be Christians, but it's not a church organization and they're rising up to fight an unjust government. Well, that's fine. That's just the way of the world. <laughs> it's fallen, fallen man. We don't like these guys. We want to be ruled by different guys. Let's, let's drive them off. Right. Um, and Christians can do that with a clean conscience. It's different than like the IRS agent is at my door, so I'm just going to shoot him. Like that would be completely unjust. Right? That would yeah, be absolutely be wrong. Um, 
even if even if you could make the argument that from a rights-based standpoint your rights are being violated you should have the right to defend yourself okay but christian ethics is about more than just rights you know this is like you're just senselessly causing mayhem pay your stupid taxes (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's the way paul and jesus would understand it um Sorry, I know I've been ranting a while. I'll let you talk. No, no. One other one other element I want to throw in there mm-hmm. is that, you know, Jesus is combating the zealots when he's talking about this. And the zealots are a religious group of people who want to overthrow the Roman government. And they are very much, if you look into their background, they are very much mixing the Jewish religion with like political violent action, uh, revolutionary behavior, right? And certainly Jesus and the apostles condemn the zealots. That's without question. Um, so so we also have to understand these passages in that context. Like, um, pay your taxes, don't be a zealot. That doesn't necessarily mean that all tax revolts are wrong. It, it just depends on the circumstances. Mm-hmm. I think that's everything I thought. <laughs> yes, no, so... that's, that is all, that's all great, Jeremy. Um, I, I think maybe I'll just... Uh... I I have one more thing to say, and then maybe we can wrap up here. But the uh, I I sort of have maybe I I think the 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 analogy between civil rulers and like pastors is actually very helpful in maybe getting people over the barrier of like it's okay to resist authorities because uh, <laughs> like you know I I hear you talk. And, you know, I, you know, I remember the way that I thought, you know, a number of years ago and I like, I probably would have like been a little cringy at some of the things that you're saying of like, what do you mean? It's like, okay to, you know, resist. And because we do sort of have, I I don't know, I think our, well, okay. Our society is thoroughly propagandized uh, (laughs) against thinking in that way. Um, But so maybe, maybe just a, a little bit of an analogy to maybe help people hear a little bit more of, of what we're really saying. Um, and, and that that it's not really that we're making an unbiblical or unreasonable argument. Um, and that is so. So, like, just think about pastors for a moment. Um, and this is like, you know, pastors definitely owed financial uh, support from us for the you know service that they render. Don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. But suppose you go to a church where your pastor is like embezzling the money from the church. He's enriching himself. He's constantly browbeating you. Um, about how you need to be giving giving to the ministry of the Lord. You need to send in your seed offering so that you can then receive God's blessings and, you know, is basically just all around abusing people and stealing. And like, and that's the thing that he's doing as a pastor. Um, you know, is it a, um, are you obligated to keep tithing to that church? Are you like obligated to keep giving that church money? Um, like, are you obligated to stay there indefinitely and continue to be abused and taken advantage of by this man? I think I, I I think it's pretty obvious that the answer is no. That like certainly we're commanded to um, honor our leaders and support them, but it's like, but there is, like we were talking about in the first episode of this series, there is a level of like egregious wrong that can be done where you then functionally abdicate your authority. Where that that pastor who's doing those activities, he's abdicated his authority. And like no one is no one is obligated to to be under his authority anymore. And you're totally fine to leave and to stop supporting him. Like it could, like, it could even get fine. bad enough that you would be morally obligated to oppose him. Yes. Like 
like let's say it's not just embezzling funds which i don't know at that point it might already be bad enough what if he's using the funds to pay off the parents of children he's abusing in the church yeah okay so that's like an even more extreme circumstance where i would say not only are you not obligated to keep giving you're obligated not to and expose it yeah you're probably (laughs) obligated to hand the man over to the civil authorities to punish the evil (laughs) (laughs) good point yeah (laughs) yeah and and so it's so there's this piece where um even very clear like like un like unqualified statements about the support that we should give to leaders has to be understood in the context of but this isn't like a literally every single circumstance he calls himself a pastor therefore this is applied like situate like there there are situations that you get opted out and and by the same token it's like i think that if that's true of pastors it's probably also true of governing authorities again i'm trying to maybe help people uh, be able to hear a little bit more of what we're saying. And so if the thing that your state is doing is sufficiently evil, if what they're doing is sufficiently abusive, then they've abdicated their authority. And like, you know, you are now no longer morally obligated to financially support them anymore. You're no longer morally obligated to, you know, be under their authority. Now, in that case, it might, yeah, <laughs> pragmatically, may. it may still be a good idea to do it. Uh, <laughs> But you're not. But there's there's not the moral obligation that Paul is talking about here, you know. But then I think I think there's a lot of gray area in the middle too. Of it's like you know. So what if what if your pastor is not, um, you know, doing all of those like straight evil things? But maybe he's just like you know. Maybe your elder board is just unwise with money, and they keep like putting money into all of these like church programs. They don't really do anything. They don't go anywhere. It's not like really helping anybody or serving the church or you know maybe they just aren't really good with their you know money in that in in that standpoint of it's not that they're evil maybe they're just kind of low-grade incompetent when it comes to finances it's like well i mean does that actually free you from the obligation of financially supporting like it's like just because your pastor's unwise does that mean he shouldn't get to eat like, I, I don't know. I, I think that one's a lot harder to argue. It's gray area. If it's egregious enough, perhaps. But how would we know without all the details of the circumstance? Right. Which frequently we don't have access to. Sure. And, but I mean, like, and, as an individual believer trying to judge this situation, is there a right or a wrong answer? You're the expert, actually, at that point. The Bible <laughs> only gives us certain ideas and principles. You have to apply them with prayer. You yeah. know? So if you're trying to, you know, start the American Revolution and you're, you know, a colonist and you're a Christian, should I fight or should I not? I don't know. That's actually kind of between you and God. There's not a single yeah. answer to that, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. Can you do it with a clean conscience? And I, I think mm-hmm. that tells you a lot. I mean, Augustine, um, we don't need to get into it right now. Augustine has his just war theory, which I think is super helpful here. You know, he he puts forward principles like, can you win? <laughs> Right? Like that's yes. very simple. Like if you can't actually win the war you're trying to undertake, then all you're doing is senselessly killing people. Yeah. Like so, that's an important ethical. And goodness, that's a tough question to judge. If you're yeah. an American colonist in the 1770s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they probably thought it was kind of a long shot, but <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, it panned out pretty well for it them. Did so. pan- I mean, you know, the Lord blessed. I think the the efforts and yeah. But like. I, I think it just kind of centers back to the point of like, um, yeah, like a husband has authority over his wife, but not always. 
Pastor has authority over his congregation, but not always. Parents have authority over their children, but not always. Like something can be generally true and yet it still be right to rebel against the general truth yeah. if the context has changed. And we talked about that when we talked about the rest of Romans 13. Or, and I think we also actually talked about it in part one. Um, a lot of these th- themes keep coming back, but it's like, yeah, this is all true. Generally speaking, obey the government, pay your taxes, don't give offense to anybody. Our citizenship is in heaven. Caesar might be a jerk, but like he's kind of the one in charge right now. Yeah. So just deal with it and live mm-hmm. in the real world. Um, but maybe the circumstances are different, right? Yeah. Um, Caesar asks you to deliberately disobey God. Now you've got a different circumstance. Yeah. Now you have to choose God over Caesar. But then there's a lot of gray area where it's like, well, he's not telling me to disobey God, but he's also kind of completely undermining everything about my life and happiness and, <laughs> and I really don't flourishing. like it. <laughs> yeah. And public flourishing. Yeah. So then, then it becomes a question of, well, you know, what's the cost of resistance? Is it yeah. worth it? Is it, uh, you know, pragmatically smart? Is it wise? That's uh, really, that's the word here. Is it wise? Yeah. Um, and that's a hard question and not one that you can answer with just these passages on taxation. And so that's, I, I don't know, that's kind of why I feel, I feel like um, this, these passages aren't meant to address those sorts of things, you know, mm-hmm. Th- they're not about that. Um, yeah. And we should probably, we don't have time today, but <laughs> we should probably look at other passages concerning, you know, resistance to the government. Look at Daniel, look at the apostles. What did they do in the face of a government that clearly wasn't, rewarding good and punishing evil how did they respond to it um in those circumstances and that might be of a little more help to us uh when deciding what to do when the general truth has gone out the window you know yeah and also just deciding when the general truth has gone out the window is tricky (laughs) yeah yes um when is it bad enough right yeah (laughs) i don't know I'm not happy with the current state of things, but I I don't. Uh, Wait, really? I don't. I don't know how to, <laughs> well, it's like it's, it's a good question. It's like, man, we now have a a federal government that pushes like gender revisionism, like just denying the most fundamental aspects of reality. Those are now in question, and we have governments like in Canada, you can be imprisoned or fined a hefty fine for not going along with it, right? Mm-hmm that's a new world okay that's that's something that christians just did not have to deal with until now Mm -hmm. so what do we do about that i don't have any answers i'm my answer is the question i don't know we have to talk about it what what happens when they come for our churches how does resistance look um i don't know man (laughs) yeah i don't i don't think i have a clean answer on it either but i i think the thing that we can say is there's a lot of space for different perspectives and different choices where people can with clean consciences and and in like honor to god come to different conclusions on this and i i, I think it's okay you know that yeah i i don't think we need to necessarily be fighting each other um no yeah on on a lot of this so yeah the kingdom of god is different than the kingdoms of this world and as Christians, we ought to do good in the world. And that may include, you know, uh, 
civil service in the government, or it may include being a part of a movement to change the government, right? Uh, it depends on, on where you're at. Um, both of those are okay. It's just not the church. <laughs> I think that's the, right. Yes. Like, let's, let's keep that distinction. Uh, and, um, but just because you're a Christian in a church doesn't mean that you, uh, in enacting some sort of political change or action is wrong. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge mistake that a lot of people make these big Eva types, you know, like the Tim Kellers of the world who oh, I, I we, t- we had, we had to dunk on big Eva one more oh, time, man, any, <laughs> any opportunity to talk, uh, talk poorly of Tim Keller is a good one. Um, oh, gosh. They, they really, really, these guys neutralize evangelical political action by just claiming like, well, yeah, but the church is like not of this world. It's like, yeah, but I am okay. I have children. <laughs> like there's nothing about what about love your neighbor as yourself. I thought we were supposed to do good things in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now granted being on Twitter all day and, and watching Ben Shapiro owning liberals compilations is not doing anything good for the world. But like, but like yeah. as, a, as a general, as a that's general a good, that's concept, a good point. <laughs> As a general yeah. concept, though, like political action is important. Like some Christians yeah. should be doing it. Not all, not most, but some somewhere should be doing it. Yeah. And there's nothing contradictory um, to, I don't know, to the, the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God there. Um, I just had to find a way to dunk on Tim Keller <laughs> in this episode, man. It's just impossible not to do it. Well, I mean, there we go. I mean, that's all I have. Do you got anything else? <laughs> That's it. Pay your taxes, but you it's okay to be a little bit annoyed as you do it. Is that the is that the conclusion? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's okay to come to different conclusions. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm justifying myself here, but uh, I think so. I I've think been the thoroughly conclusion... convicted. I've been thoroughly convicted yes. by this episode, and I think um, I think our conclusion is just sort of like don't um, don't read too much into passages that aren't about what you might think they're about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay for us to disagree on some of these things. That's my my spiel here at the end. Yep. Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological or political rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.